electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. On another busy news day in Washington and on Wall Street, the president is still in the hospital following his COVID-19 diagnosis. We've got the latest on his treatment, potential departure, and its impact on top issues for investors. Plus, two major issues the U.S. will have to deal with after the pandemic, weaker population growth and the drag of high debt and an industry on the brink. We'll look at the future of theaters, malls, and Hollywood as cinemas close down again and the impact it's having on stocks. But first, we begin with the markets this hour. Dom Chu has more on that. Dom? So, Kelly, as we talk about what's happening with the overall markets, we are solidly in the green and have been for quite some time. If you take a look at the Dow, the S&P, and NASDAQ, we are sitting just at about the session highs right now, maybe just a hair below. 3365 is a key level that you're going to want to watch. It's one of those medium to longer term trend lines, something traders call the 50 day moving average. So we'll watch that level. But still solid gains here. Now the major indexes that you see are within about five to seven percent away from their recent record highs over the course of the past 52 weeks. Take a look now at one of the other big trends today. It's a reflation type environment. People are betting on a little bit of growth right now. The 10 year U.S. Treasury note yield. You can see they're rising slightly over here, but we are now at the highest levels going all the way back to around September here and then possibly back to June if we take a little bit higher here. Watch that trade. People are selling treasuries because they maybe they expect growth to pick up a little bit. Rate yields are on the rise. And then speaking of that reflation trade, check out these stocks. Albemarle is in specialty chemicals. Martin Marietta is in construction aggregates. That's asphalt and concrete and gravel. United Rentals, if you want to rent a bulldozer or backhoe. And then Deer Farm Equipment, kind of that global reflation theme playing out here as well. Albemarle gets a positive mention in Barron's this weekend. But still, look at these two stocks, United Rentals, Kelly and Deer. Both of those at one point today hit record highs in trading. So as we talk a little bit about the overall picture, that's what we're looking at right now. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, from backhoes to the 10-year yield. <laughs> you got it all covered, Dom. Thank you, sir. Let's get to Washington now with White House Press Secretary Kayla McEnany announcing just a short while ago that she, too, has tested positive for COVID-19. Kayla Tausche with the very latest. Kayla? Kelly, she announced the news on Twitter in a statement that said this, after testing negative consistently, including every day since Thursday, I tested positive for COVID-19 on Monday morning while experiencing no symptoms. McEnany says she will now work while quarantined and that the White House's medical unit counts no members of the press among her close contacts being traced. McEnany has briefed the press regularly in the last five days as the White House COVID cluster grew, including as recently as yesterday evening. There are now also reports of two of McEnany's junior staffers also testing positive, adding to a growing cluster, including the president's body man, Nick Luna, and two staffers working in the White House residence that received positive tests weeks ago, raising questions about when the virus first entered the White House complex. Advisors on hand to prepare President Trump for last week's presidential debate including Kellyanne Conway, Chris Christie, and his campaign manager, Bill Stepien, have also all tested positive. 
Now this morning on Fox News, the White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows again raised the possibility of President Trump being discharged from Walter Reed this afternoon, but he said that there will be an assessment taken of the president's condition later today, and a decision will be made then. Kelly, back to you. Kayla, in the meantime, what are the implications of the press secretary, the public face of this White House, testing positive? She mentioned she doesn't have symptoms, but is she going to be available for press briefings over the next couple of weeks? As you said, there's other members of the press office who uh, reportedly have tested positive as well. So what happens now to the president's kind of main method of communicating with the nation? Well, Kelly, McEnany hasn't held a formal briefing since Thursday, and she has been holding informal gaggles at the White House coming to and from uh, some appearances on television. She does have some deputies that have been talking to the press as well, but I think just as importantly of having McEnany taken out of the mix is having Hope Hicks taken out of the mix, who is sort of uh, the behind-the-scenes uh, confidant of President Trump's. Uh, I'm told by many senior White House officials that she is really the talent behind the president's messaging and that she's basically in every single room where every important decision is made. So yes, it is a severe handicap to not have the public face of the administration uh, able to deliver its message, but it's equally important uh, that this very influential communications aide in Hope Hicks is also taken out of the mix. Of course, we wish, wish them both a, a quick recovery and a full recovery, uh, and it remains to be seen what the impact on the reelection will be. Right. No, that's such a good point. And the it, timing of this, like you said, to have that trusted aide, Hope Hicks, not available. And I said it's his main way of communicating these press conferences. But to your point, Kayla, as long as he's got Twitter, we think that's really the main way of communicating. Uh, still, we'll see uh, how Kayla McEnany deals with her positive uh, uh, diagnosis. Kayla, thanks very much. Kayla Tausch, you working overtime for us today. Let's turn to the treatments that the president is receiving to battle the coronavirus. In particular, an experimental antibody cocktail made by Regeneron. Meg Terrell spoke with the CEO of Regeneron about that earlier today, and she joins me now with more. Meg? Hi, Kelly. This is pretty remarkable because this drug, of course, has not yet been cleared by the FDA. And so the president really one of only a handful of people who've been able to access this outside of clinical trials. Uh, so let's walk through what the president is receiving, essentially three prescription drugs. First, we learned that on Friday he was given uh, Regeneron's antibody cocktail. Friday evening, uh, he was said to start a five-day course of remdesivir, which of course is that antiviral that has emergency use authorization for Gilead. Uh, it's used on hospitalized patients. And Saturday, uh, he started the steroid dexamethasone. And now that's uh, usually given to uh, more severe hospitalized patients. And in fact, because the president's oxygen level was uh, low. Uh, doctors say, you know, that makes sense that he got that steroid. Uh, of course, questions about the Regeneron antibody cocktail and how well it works. We asked that of the Regeneron CEO, Dr. Len Schleifer, this morning. We haven't proven anything 1,000%. There are more trials going on. But I think the, the evidence that virus is the problem in this disease, more virus is bad for you, and we can lower that virus, that's a powerful and compelling argument. And Kelly, of course, if uh, it is determined that this has helped the president, there is going to be a clamoring for this drug. And before it's uh, available, that's going to be a problem for folks. Uh, some do expect, though, that this could mean an emergency use authorization is right around the corner for this drug. Regeneron tells me uh, if that is the case, right now it has about 50,000 doses available, uh, hopes to ramp that up to 300,000 within a few months. And under a contract with BARDA for $450 million, uh, it would be provided by the government to Americans at no cost.
Kelly? Meg, we're also at the same time seeing this uptick in cases, especially in the Midwest, uh, but really nationwide. Is this Regeneron treatment something that you think will be broadly available and that people can and should partake? And, and what do you make in, uh, of this kind of case count increase in general? I mean, one of the things that we keep talking about is the fact that as the case numbers go up, it doesn't seem necessarily like hospitalizations and deaths follow suit. You know, we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves in that uh, regard, obviously, but, you know, is it a little bit less severe this time around? Yeah, well, that's, of course, the hope. And it, you, you saw the graphics just there showing the increase in uh, the case counts that started coming up uh, in early September, mid-September, really connected by a lot of public health experts to Labor Day. Um, hospitalizations have not ticked up in the same way. Deaths certainly haven't. But, of course, if you look at those graphs, you see there is a delay in hospitalizations and an even further delay in deaths uh, after case numbers pick up. They have been more muted since the first round of really you know, the, the country just getting hit so hard uh, in the beginning by COVID because treatments have improved. Uh, and so, you know, we are faring better. And as younger people are getting infected more, they have less severe disease, but they infect older folks, Kelly. So we've just got to be more careful. Yeah. Yep. And that, I'm curious as well, because it's going to affect the public policy response. You see the New York governor now ordering schools to close in some hot spots. Meg, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you very, very much. Meg Terrell with the latest for us on the COVID front. Let's turn back to markets, which are hanging on to their gains so far today, even as questions swirl about the president's condition, the election and those rising numbers of new virus counts we are talking about both here and abroad, by the way. Why is the market shrugging off these developments and which headlines are going to matter most from here? Let's ask Gina Sanchez. She's CEO of Chantico Global and chief market strategist at Lido Advisors. She's also a CNBC contributor. Jack Manley is chief global strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. It's good to have you both here. So, Gina, are you surprised that markets aren't more rattled than uh, than we're seeing play out today? Well, I think the initial response from markets on Friday was just the shock factor. Um, but as you see continued uh, news reports that the president is getting better, um, you know, I think that the markets are going back to a status quo, which is that they're looking past most of these events. All of these things will eventually, the election will come to fruition. Uh, eventually, this virus will be uh, brought under control. And those are the things that the market continues to discount. That's fair enough. But, Jack, I guess I wonder if... You know, does the market just want an election outcome one way or the other? Or if this swings it towards Biden or towards Trump, uh, is that the larger question? Or even the Supreme Court? I mean, I, I'm not going to say that's market moving, but it certainly has dramatic policy implications. So do you think investors are just trying to figure out where we go from here? Or do you think that none of these events for now really make a difference? Well, well, you're right, Kelly. I mean, I think this is a landscape that is just absolutely riddled with complications. But uh, as we have seen in the past, markets more than anything just don't like uncertainty. And we are facing a profound amount of uncertainty, particularly over the next month, whether it is the president's health, the election, escalating tensions, new caseload in the United States. I think a result in November, regardless of who wins, will be taken by the market with a sigh of relief because at least we'll get a little bit more clarity on what perhaps the next four years will hold. I think that's what's going on with markets now. The Gina's point, looking through current conditions uh, into that new status quo.
Yeah. Gina, let me turn to some of the topics that Dom mentioned off the very top when he was talking about uh, some of the industrials and materials names rallying today. The 10-year yield at 0.75 percent. I mean, you know, break out the pom-poms if you're the banks. You know, those all are going to fit into this big discussion over whether you can kind of follow the reopening rotation or not. You know, whether you have to stick with the idea that, nope, COVID is spreading, it's going to be back to the stay-at-home stocks. What would you say? Well, I think the, the, the rally of industrials and materials is a little bit of a head-scratcher because if you look at the macro data coming uh, through the past month, we have seen a slowdown in the recovery, and that has been proven out by the data, the labor data. We have seen personal income falling, um, and there's yet no sign that a stimulus package is a done deal yet, and until we see that, I think the slowdown continues. So I'm not entirely certain why the industrials would be uh, rallying at the, at the moment. Jack, what would you add to that? I would say that we've been here before. I mean, we've seen these sort of bouts and fits of cyclical rotations throughout the course of the last six months. I think investors looking for those value-driven opportunities that may exist out there in the market. But I would say as long as there is still this uncertainty, as long as we don't have a vaccine, I'm really wary about that cyclical trade. I think there is a lot of uh, uncertainty on the horizon. I think things could get worse before they get better. Uh, I don't see another recession, but I do see things slowing down. And I, I'd rather we'll focus on, on, on the things that have done well and will likely continue to do well, hold on that cyclical rotation until we get at least more clarity around things like the election or a vaccine timetable. I assume then you wouldn't be a big fan of the financials, Jack? You know, believe it or not, it is one of the parts of the cyclical space that I am leaning more into. I look at things like energy. I look at things like industrials, particularly the airlines. I see lower for longer demand for these sectors, long uh, outpacing uh, even the end of COVID. Uh, but for financials, I think you have banks in particular, the large cap ones. They are well capitalized. They have fortress balance sheets. The underlying credit quality of their borrowers is still very high. I think you actually may see a nice valuation tailwind over there. So while I wouldn't advocate for a wholesale rotation into cyclical stocks, I think we can find some value there. And I would say financials is actually one of them, Kelly. I realized after I asked you that you work for JP Morgan, so I wasn't really expecting you to say, nah, forget them. They're dead money. Uh, anyway, thank you guys both today. Appreciate it. Jack Manley and Gina Sanchez on these markets and where they think you can invest. Coming up, the movie industry facing a crucial moment as key films get pushed back and theaters are closing again. We're going to look at the ripple effect that's going to have across a number of sectors. Plus, the stimulus plan is hanging in the balance as the president urges compromise while the Senate goes on recess. What's the economic fallout if another big COVID relief bill isn't signed? And Facebook says an antitrust breakup is a non-starter. We've got all those details on the other big story out there today. The exchange is back in a couple. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Regal Cinemas, the second largest cinema chain in the U.S., will close all of its locations nationwide less than two months after reopening. Shares of Regal's parent company, Cineworld, are tanking today nearly 40% at one point. They've moderated to a drop of 24%. But look at the share price. This is a 40-cent stock. Its market cap is less than $400 million. Julia Borson is standing by with more on the trouble that movie theaters face here. Julia? Well, Kelly, with no big wide releases scheduled for months, it simply doesn't make sense to keep theaters open. Regal owner Cinemark deciding to shutter all its U.S. and U.K. theaters after MGM delayed James Bond, No Time to Die, which was expected to be one of the biggest films of the year. It was scheduled for November 25th. Now it's been delayed till April of 2021. We spoke to the CEO of the company on Squawk Alley this morning. We are now like a kind of a grocery shop that have no food to sell. So the cinemas are good, the cinemas are ready. We have implemented Cinema Safe very successfully and was very warmly welcomed by our customers, but we don't get new movies. On this news, shares of Regal Parent Cineworld are down 24%, Cinemark down nearly 17%, AMC Entertainment shares off over 9%, and IMAX shares down nearly 3%. There's no word on when Cineworld aims uh, to reopen those Regal theaters. But of course, Kelly, a lot depends on what the studios decide. A bit of a chicken and egg situation there. Oh, yeah. Julia, stay right there. We have the National Association of Theater Owners warning that if the status quo continues, 69% of small and mid-sized movie theater companies will be in or near bankruptcy. The ripple effect of that could be felt across industries, from real estate to the towns that depend on this tax revenue and foot traffic. For more on how precarious a situation movie chains are in, Eric Handler joins us now. He's a managing director at MKM Partners and their media and entertainment analyst. Eric, it's good to have you, and you can use AMC uh, as an example if you'd like, but, I mean, what are the options here, and how frustrated are the movie chains that they don't have more movies to show? Well, I, I think you got it right when you said it's a bit of a chicken, uh, chicken and the egg type of uh, situation we have here. Theaters need content, uh, and without the content, it's tough to, uh, it's tough, tough to be open. Uh, I think on the studio side, uh, what they're looking for, particularly in the United States, uh, is New York and Los Angeles to be able to reopen its theaters. And I think without those two markets, which account for a significant amount of uh, revenue, um, it, it's, you know, they're going to be very reluctant to open up any big budget films. Tenet showed that it can't, you know, middle That's America can't, can't carry the business on its shoulders. Sure. I mean, Tenet was a $200 million picture that grossed $45 million. I understand why the producers are saying, we, you know, we can't accept that. We have to try to get a better return on our money. But, Eric, why is it that international movie theaters are able to make a better box office right now? And it's funny you mentioned New York and Los Angeles. I mean, could the movie industry survive if we simply had those two major markets reopening? Well, I think you need the whole portfolio of the U.S., uh, to be open, but missing Los Angeles and New York City, the two largest uh, uh, markets in the country, re really hurts. Um, and when you spend that much money, you need those markets open. Internationally, is further along because they were further along uh, in terms of the uh, pandemic recovery. Uh, you know, Tenet did a pretty decent $250 million uh, internationally. So, you know, international is is we're cautiously optimistic about international, but now 
I think one of the things that was worrisome for MGM with Bond is you have the second wave, and now you have concerns about the UK, where which is one of Bond's most important market, uh, as well as Germany. Yeah, great point, Eric. I have one more question for you. Then we'll turn back to Julia, but. You say that right now these uh, theater or the movie companies themselves, the studios, don't have another great option. You said that Mulan, in your view, was a flop. Can you explain that? Because by what standard and does it matter if for Disney it still drives people to Disney Plus? But I'm curious why you think that's not a more viable option right now. Well, based on the data that I've seen, the first week, uh, first week numbers for Mulan were about 1.1 million buys. So that's about $33 million. Uh, it hasn't done uh, exceptionally well internationally. Uh, you had some issues in China with reviews as well as some political issues. Uh, but when you look at the U.S., you know, when you spend over $200 million, you need a much bigger opening than $33 million in its first weekend. So um, I have yet to see any studio proclaim significant success uh, with premium video on demand. And it, there's definitely been nothing there to replace what a theatrical window can provide. Yeah, so Julia, final question. If it's good for the theaters, if the studios really face no other option, why not just get these movies out there? If, it's, if you can argue it's good for the economy and kind of keep this all going, maybe they can then say, look, we're not going to make the return we wanted, but maybe we can get some help from Washington. Well, I look, look, Kelly, I think you have to acknowledge the medical risks here. I think that the reason the studios are holding back is what we saw with Tenant indicates that consumers are not really ready to rush back in big numbers. The states, you know, New York City, Los Angeles, the two biggest movie going markets, the local authorities deem that the numbers there are too high for it to be safe. So when you just simply don't have either the demand from the audience or the safety, uh, you know, element in place where people, you know, where either the theaters are open or people will feel comfortable going back. It's just not worth it for the studios. And I think the move we saw with the delay of James Bond on Friday really indicates the studios say, OK, we're going to wait until, you know, end of November or, or Christmas. It's a total it's going to be a, a, you know, a total wash until then. Let's just focus on video on demand for the films where it makes sense. And it may not make sense to release a two hundred million dollar yeah. movie. Uh, on video on demand, but it may make sense for some of the smaller films. So I think in a way that decision and that move gives some clarity to the studios right now and at least removes that uncertainty. Yeah, I, I will be surprised if Christmas Day, even if that Wonder Woman movie is going to be the event they hope it will be. Julia and Eric, we'll leave it there. Thank you both for now. Our Julia Borson yeah. and Eric Handler of MKM. Coming up, Greg Ipp of The Wall Street Journal says two key things are going to weigh on this economy post-COVID. The debt and our demographics he'll join us to explain. And as cases are rising in Europe, Paris now on maximum alert and England threatening more lockdowns. We're gonna be live in Paris with the latest. Stay with us. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently 
acapella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange. Uh, Dow's up 350 points right now. So the gains that we saw going back to the future session last night after the president took that motorcade trip, uh, said he wanted to be released from the hospital today. We saw futures up a couple hundred. We've continued that into the session today. We await news uh, on his condition and release. Uh, but still, the S&P's up 46 points and Nasdaq's up 203. So the Nasdaq, the outperformer, up 1.8 percent that is. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for a CNBC News update. Sue. Good to see you, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. Saying new COVID clusters need to be attacked, quote, immediately and dramatically, end quote. New York's governor is closing schools in several parts of that state, including sections of Brooklyn and Queens effective tomorrow. Just before leaving for Miami, where he will participate in an NBC News town hall tonight, Joe Biden was asked about President Trump's Sunday car ride outside of the hospital. Biden says he's reluctant to comment on the president's health or anything he is or is not doing. It looked like business as usual in Madrid today, even though that city is now prohibiting non-essential travel as the infection rates rise. Spain is the first Western European nation with more than 800,000 total cases. And in southwestern Japan, take a look at that. It's a shouting contest adjusted for the pandemic. Competitors wearing face shields were judged this year on what they shouted, not how loud they shouted it. The event, which also features eating beef barbecue in a pasture, was limited to just 100 people, one-sixth the usual attendance. Actually looks kind of therapeutic. Maybe it's a stress reducer as well. Looks fun. Yeah. Love those quirky traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sue, thank you very much. You got it, Kel. Uh, Sue Herrera. As COVID cases climb in Europe, Paris is getting put on maximum alert amid a surge in the city, while England is reportedly considering a strict three-tier lockdown plan. NBC's Matt Bradley is in Paris for us with the very latest. Matt? Yeah, Kelly, you know that strict three-tier lockdown program, there's a very similar one in place here, and Paris has just risen to the top tier. It's a maximum zone. That means that bars are going to be entirely closed as of tomorrow. Restaurants aren't going to be allowed to sell or allow their customers to consume alcohol after 10 p.m. And also, as always, uh, gyms and other places like that are going to continue to be closed. Gatherings have been constricted in size. But let's be honest, there's been for the last couple of weeks, we've been here a lot of violations. Even though they're imposing these regulations, there's been a lot of resistance, especially in the southern city of Marseille where bars and restaurants are closed entirely. And I expect, if things go the way they've been going in the last couple of weeks, that we're going to see a lot of very blatant violations in cafes and bars and restaurants all throughout this city. Kelly? Matt, thank you, sir. Matt Bradley in Paris for us to give the European perspective on the spread of COVID. Coming up, COVID-19 taking center stage in Washington for sure. What does it do to the possibility of more stimulus and to the process and timeline to get Amy Coney Barrett confirmed to the Supreme Court? We'll dig into all of that. Plus, what about campaign fundraising? As the election approaches, will donors still show up to events knowing they could get exposed? That's all ahead here on The Exchange. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. The election is now just 28 days away, and the coronavirus is spreading through the White House and Capitol Hill. What does it mean for a host of issues, but especially for another round of stimulus relief? Elon Moy joins me now at the latest. Elon? 
Well, Kelly, the discussions between the Treasury Secretary and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi appear now to be drilling down into the details of another COVID relief package. The two of them spoke this morning over the phone at 11.30 a.m. For about an hour, Pelosi's office said they got into specific numbers and plan to exchange paper ahead of yet another phone call tomorrow. So the question is rapidly becoming, where does President Trump stand on all of this? Well, apparently today he spoke to Lindsey Graham. Graham, of course, is the Republican chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And he tweeted that Trump is engaged, ready to get back to work, and excited about the potential confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. And he said that Trump is focused on a good deal to help stimulate the economy. So, Kelly, the White House knows that the Supreme Court and stimulus are going to be their last chances to score a policy victory ahead of the election. And Elon, even as that hangs in the balance, the first issue that affected it seemed to be this Supreme Court vacancy and how that was going to suck all the oxygen out of the room. So we not only face that battle, but we face it now maybe minus a couple of senators or ones that can handle it remotely. What are the rules for how this can proceed? Are we still expecting it to move forward in the next couple of weeks? Well, the interesting thing here, Kelly, is that the fight over the Supreme Court is now also turning into a fight over how to handle the COVID-19 outbreak. Democrats are now calling for strict new testing protocols ahead of Barrett's uh, confirmation hearings that are supposed to begin next week. They want to see uh, members and staff quarantining. They want to see members and staff having two negative tests on consecutive days. And they also want to see mandatory testing on every single day of the hearing. But Kelly, Republicans have been adamant that the timeline for her confirmation is not changing and that all of their members will be healthy enough to attend. Back over to you. We know a couple of the senators, Elon, who already have tested positive, Mike Lee, Tom Tillis. Um, you know, to, for what piece of this can they participate remotely? For what piece of it do they have to be there in person? And what are the odds now that this could change the vote count and maybe swing her confirmation away from being a done deal? That is why Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has made it very clear that he wants members back in session on October 19th. There is a two-member Republican majority on the Judiciary Committee, and so they will need all of their members there in order to ensure that her nomination gets out of committee and then can make it to the Senate floor. Uh, the numbers here can be uh, very thin. There's also two additional senators on the Judiciary Committee who are in quarantine after uh, being exposed to the virus. So. They want to make sure that everybody is there. And Democrats have been pushing back very hard against the idea of holding virtual hearings for something that's going to be a lifetime appointment. Uh, but McConnell has said the Senate has done virtual hearings since the start of this pandemic, part in person, part virtual. They can continue to do it now. All right. Well, those each day between now and then is going to be vital uh, as we wait to hear whether any other uh, folks test positive. Elon, thank you very much. Elon Moy in Washington for us. Now, another round of stimulus, if it does pass, will add to mounting U.S. debt levels. The CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, already thinks the federal deficit will hit a record $3.3 trillion this year. That's more than three times the shortfall last year, and that's due to the earlier measures that were already passed. And it could pose a big risk to the economy. Joining me now with more, Greg Ipp is the chief economics commentator at The Wall Street Journal. He's the author of the recent piece, Demographics and Debt Hangover, the Long-Term U.S. Growth. Greg, we're looking for good news these days. You got you got bad news and worse. Yeah, sorry. If you were uh, bothered about the short-term economic outlook, my bad news is that the uh, long-term outlook is actually worse. 
Uh, and Kelly, we talked about debt uh, in the opening of this segment, but it's almost as much, if not more so, a demographic story, really. I mean, demographics to a great extent is destiny when it comes to long-term growth. And this pandemic, I think, has tended to aggravate two serious problems the United States has had. One is that the um, uh, fertility rate, which was already has been decli declining basically since the last recession, is probably going to drop again. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office thinks it'll fall to 1.6 uh, next year, which would be the lowest in at least a century of data, well below the 2.1 number that we think of as the replacement rate. And so that alone is going to uh, put a serious drag on the population because kids not born next year will not be part of the labor force 20 years from now. Now, what do you do about low fertility? Well, you can increase immigration. But according to the CBO, we're going to have fewer immigrants, too, because of the uh, uh, barriers that were raised to immigration because of the pandemic and the fact that we're having fewer uh, undocumented coming in anyway. So you put those two things together, there's going to be a lot fewer Americans 20 to 30 years uh, from now. And that puts a greater burden on the ones remaining to both grow the economy and sustain the very high levels of debt that we're now carrying and are going to yeah. be carrying. I mean, you could also increase the fertility rate, but that, they're trying that in other parts of the world with mixed success. You know, I asked the doctor when I was there the other day, I said, you know, are you seeing more or fewer patients than usual? And they said for a couple of months when the pandemic first broke out, it, they saw fewer than usual. But in the last few months, it's really picked up and they're seeing as many people in a week almost as they used to see in a month. Um, so perhaps there will be a catch up effect. But it, as we await the answer on that, tell me what you think about the debt situation. I mean, this is going to be the one that drives policymaking near term. Are you expecting something like a Tea Party movement? Would that be premature here? And how do we know what level is a level that hurts growth? Well, traditionally, the sign that you looked for was upward pressure on interest rates. That was the sign that all the government borrowing was competing with the private sector and squeezing out or crowding out private sector borrower, borrowers. That means less investment. You don't see that now, and you actually haven't seen it for a number of years. We're running these very large deficits, and interest rates are rock bottom, and the Fed says it's going to keep them there for the next four or five years. So crowding out is not a near-term problem. But if eventually we get past this weak spot and the pandemic's behind us, and most economists think that that indeed will happen, then interest rates will eventually rise off of zero. And that's when you do worry about crowding out. Now, what would it tell us if interest rates never get back to where they were before and there is no crowding out? It tells you that the fundamentals of investment were already weak. You've heard the expression like the... Uh, um, a secular stagnation or, or, or the global saving mm -hmm. glut. That's basically a story about how uh, investment around the world, not just in the United States, has been unexpectedly weak for some time. Lower investment always equals lower productivity. So that, I think, Kelly, is kind of the, the, the double dagger right now heading, uh, aimed at the long-term health of our economy. Fewer Americans and the Americans that we have will be less productive unless we can somehow have a burst of innovation and animal spirits that like gives us a new productivity boom. Yeah, and, and a lot of other births as well <laughs> uh, to fix the, the demographic problem. Final question, Greg. You know, it, it goes back, we mentioned today the 10-year 0.75%, and that's like nearly a, a two- or three-month high. Um, is the traditional thinking about this broken or not? I mean, wouldn't you say the single biggest question for the economy right now as we try to pass this next COVID relief bill and, and so much more is, you know, should we hold back out of some sense that, oh, maybe this is too much? Or do we plow ahead, bet on growth, and then hope that the debt and the deficit takes care of itself? 
I think you plow ahead right now, Kelly. I mean, the bottom line is that the Fed, by keeping interest rates at zero, has basically said to Congress, borrow as much as you as the economy needs right now. You're not going to pay much to borrow that money. I mean, money is as close to free as it's ever going to get with interest rates basically at zero uh, right out to five years. Um, and, and as you said, below 1% over the 10-year uh, horizon. Um, and by the way, that right, the time to basically borrow and stimulate the economy is when the Fed can't do much because interest rates are at zero and money is free. And that will actually he speed up the healing process. And it raises our hopes that some of the scarring that you might anticipate from a prolonged period of high unemployment isn't actually going to happen. Kelly, the real issue is what do we do three or four years from now when we're past this period? We have made no progress at all mm -hmm. dealing with the serious problem of uh, uh, elderly entitlements here. If anything, they're going to get worse. Uh, the, this administration cut in, interest, uh, cut tax rates with no plan to uh, get uh, to, to pay for them. If uh, we have a Biden presidency, he has big plans to, for example, lower the Medicare uh, eligibility age and add other spending. And as far as I can tell, those are not completely paid for. So we have two parties who are dedicated to basically doing more without paying for it. So I think that those tough questions are waiting for us at some point down the line. I don't see anybody right now trying to answer them. Yeah, no, Greg, it's always good to check in with you and kind of bring them more to the forefront. Really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you, Kelly. Greg Ip with The Wall Street Journal. Still ahead, the president holding a fundraising event just hours before announcing he was positive for COVID-19. GOP donors reportedly freaking out about their potential contact with the president. Will the Trump campaign be able to draw crowds for future events before the election? That's next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. We are 28 days away from the election, and it's expected to be the most expensive campaign in history. Spending is estimated to reach nearly $11 billion between the presidential and congressional races. And a new piece on CNBC.com is looking at how the Trump campaign is being forced to shift fundraising gears now. Joining me is Brian Schwartz. He's politics and finance reporter at CNBC.com. Brian, and what's the plan now uh, in order to get the most bang for their buck? Thanks for having me, Kelly. Basically, the next moves here for the Trump campaign are as follows. They're going to be moving ahead with these virtual events. It's kind of what they did at the beginning of the campaign, at the beginning of the coronavirus in March. Uh, they tried to go to in-person. Now they're going back to virtual. And basically, the message to donors is the president, one way or another, is going to be fine. Uh, you know, to move ahead with get, continuing to give uh, contributions, sometimes in figures of uh, six figures or more. And really to just, you know, keep attending these virtual events as they happen. But the campaign itself really started to figure this out with everyone else in terms of the president's health on Friday. And they've been scrambling ever since to put together these virtual yeah. events which would be in person as of a few days ago. Brian, you know, it's interesting because as you and, and many others have reported, the donors who were at that Bedminster event were furious about and just kind of scared about uh, their exposure to COVID, but it still seems to me that in-person is the most effective way to, way to raise money. So my question is whether we would really expect either campaign to shift gears now, um, because there's, there's a lot to be said for, you know, meeting the president or the potential president in person versus doing it on Zoom, right? Yeah, you're 100% right in terms of the effect of it. 
uh, you know, but you, in, in a way, you compare what's, go, what's been going on with the Biden campaign since the first coronavirus case at the United States back in March. They've been going full on with virtual fundraisers for a while. The, the Trump campaign has tried the same thing here or there, but it has not always involved the president. Oftentimes, those events have been with uh, key supporters and advisors, special guests. They're going to try that again here. But you're right, particularly with Republican fundraisers, the in-person events have been the big draw. You, there's no doubt about that. When, when Trump supporters are able to see and speak with the president in person, that has been key for the Trump campaign's fundraising. Yeah. So you have to wonder if this is just a short-term plan and they're hoping the president can get back on his feet or you know they really are looking at the, the next few weeks. Remember, it's only about 28 days left to go. Time is not really on their side here. And the Biden campaign... Yeah. Has the last month or two done much better with fundraising compared to Trump. Real quickly, Brian, where are we? That's exactly what I was going to ask you before we go. Where are we on the fundraising on one side versus the other? How, how big is the gap? And that's going to matter, I would imagine, potentially quite a lot here down the line. Yeah, Biden and the, and the Democratic National Committee came into September with more cash on hand than Trump and the Republican National Committee. That's just the bottom line. It was a good amount more. I think it was about $100 million more on hand. Uh, from Biden compared to Trump, and that's the key metric. I mean, you could say how you look at how much each team raised, but the amount of resources, at least going into September, that's the data we have that's most up to date, uh, was advantage Joe Biden. All right, Brian, thank you, sir. Appreciate it very, very much. Brian Schwartz from CNBC.com. You can read more of his piece online. And a quick programming note, CNBC will be showing NBC's Town Hall with Joe Biden, hosted by Lester Holt, at 8 p.m. tonight. You can also stream it at CNBC.com. There's many ways to catch it. You don't want to miss it. And still ahead, the House Antitrust Panel is nearing the end of its year-long investigation into big tech, the regulation that could be ahead, and why at least one company's lawyers are calling the government efforts a non-starter. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The House Antitrust Subcommittee is wrapping up its investigation into Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Their report is said to include a broad set of legislative recommendations. As a new piece in The Wall Street Journal examines Facebook's defense against antitrust scrutiny, the social media giant arguing that any government effort to break up the company from Instagram and WhatsApp would be, quote, a complete non-starter costing billions of dollars, harming consumers, and defying established law. With more, joining me now is Nilay Patel. He's editor-in-chief at The Verge and a CNBC contributor. Nilay, I have to admit, with everything else going on over the past several days, I mean, bring us up to speed on this effort against big tech. We're awaiting more word from Washington today. But if they're looking at legislative remedies here, you know, this is, this is the biggie, right? It's the big one. Um, uh, Congressman Cicilline, who's the chairman of the antitrust subcommittee, has reminded me several times that the Congress does not have the power to break up tech companies. The Congress has the power to change the law, introduce regulation, and refer to agencies uh, that a company like Facebook be broken up. And he has said to the CEOs of the companies, some of you need to be broken up, all of you need to be regulated. So whether or not that legislation is going to come through what is a very paralyzed Washington, D.C. right now in the middle of the election season uh, with the president in the White House uh, sidelined by COVID. I don't know, but I do know that the investigation has been going on for over a year and the sort of bipartisan consensus 
that monopolization has gone too far uh, and that the laws that need to be changed is very high. So I would expect this report to come out for it to be scathing. We're expecting some more revelations about the big platforms in the report itself. And then the work to actually change the law uh, begin in earnest uh, and continue on into whoever the next president is. Right. So this will take some time. Tell me about this next appearance on Capitol Hill from the CEOs. You know, the one over the summer, because it was done remotely, didn't really have as much import. I want to say it somehow didn't feel like the big event that we saw with the bank CEOs, you know, after the Wall Street collapse and that sort of thing. This will be, I presume, still also a remote event. uh, But what is the purpose of this hearing? And does it build on what we've already heard from these CEOs? Yeah, really, what, there's two tracks for the big tech companies to answer for. What the antitrust committee has been focused on and is often distracted by, but what they've been focused on is digital marketplaces. If you're buying and selling things online, whether that's goods in the case of Amazon, whether it's advertising in the case of Google, whether it's apps and services in the case of um, Apple, their power in the marketplace has constrained the amount of economic freedom that other companies have to act. And that's something they've been focused on. I think it's what the report will be narrowly focused on. Next to that, which no one can ignore, is the power that the big social media platforms have around speech and expression and whether or not their uh, their protection under Section 230 to moderate uh, is too strong. That is an ongoing debate. It all feels connected. It all feels like big tech platform power, but they are different issues, even though they tend to get muddled. This next one is going to be focused on that. I imagine it will be extremely chaotic, the amount of pressure on these platforms to both protect the election and not interfere in it uh, by moderating is very, very high. And so quickly, Milai, if you're an investor in one of these big tech companies, which includes basically the entire population right now, um, what kind of legislative changes are we talking about? And, you know, I, I, I suppose the question is, how much should investors be afraid of this or just accept it as par for the course? You know, that statement from Facebook uh, in the Wall Street Journal piece that uh, government breakup would be a non-starter is very telling. That's how powerful Facebook thinks it is, that they can just tell the government not to mm-hmm. do it. Um, that's really not the position they're in. The government has broken up other huge companies before. It broke up the railroads. It broke up AT&T. It can certainly break up three apps from one company. I think if you're an investor, the thing to be looking at is how much value is locked up in these monopolies? How much investment are we not seeing? How much competitive action in the marketplace to free up more value creation are we not seeing? Uh, uh, Representative Jay Paul uh, at a hearing a couple days ago uh, noted that monopolization is actually leading to wage stagnation, which leads to liquidity problems Hmm. in other parts of the market. So I think investors should look at this in one of two ways. One, yep, we're all all tied up in the FANG companies. They're driving the indexes right now. That's that K-shaped recovery. But the second part of it is, how much are we not seeing from other companies competing? How much are we not seeing from Google wanting to cannibalize itself or Facebook wanting to cannibalize itself? And that's a big deal, and I think all of us have to price that in. Absolutely. And Neil, I don't mean to check you off. We just have to go. But I as always really love your perspective. Now I feel like I can follow it a little bit more. I mean, everything else happening. Neil Patel from The Verge. That does it for the exchange, but don't go anywhere today. Power Lunch is back in two minutes. Stay with us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.
At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.